Hi, this is Steve. There are some films that are hard to watch. Heavy dramas you have to steel yourself for, experimental films that take all your concentration, or movies that you're interested for historical or intellectual reasons rather than entertainment. Die Hard is not one of those films. In fact, it's as watchable and entertaining today as it was when it premiered almost 30 years ago. The characters are smart, interesting, and clearly defined with great performances from Bruce Willis, the amazing Alan Rickman, and a great cast of supporting actors. John McTiernan's direction, along with the camera work of Jan de Bont, is inventive, fast-paced, and continuously engaging. Die Hard fundamentally changed the movie industry and paved the way for the action boom of the 90s and beyond. It's available for rental on iTunes and Amazon, and there's a pretty good Blu-ray available as well. If you're a movie fan and you haven't seen Die Hard yet, now is the time, because we'll be talking about it this Friday on The Cinephiles. Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film, explore its themes, its history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. I'm John Roca. I'm a host and co-host of numerous shows here in Los Angeles, also an actor and voiceover actor. Uh, and today we're doing a movie where, honestly, John, I feel a little bad for you on this one because I'm not sure that I'm going to shut up. <laughs> You might not get a word in edgewise. Wow. This is one of my favorites. And not only is it one of my favorite films, yeah. I think it's one of the best crafted films I know. And I use it in class to teach mm -hmm. all the time. And the oh. movie is Die Hard, 1988, John yes. McTiernan, uh, starring Bruce Willis. It is the archetypal action film. Let me stop you right yeah. there. There's yeah. no way you're not letting me get a word in edgewise. This is also one of my favorite films, bar none immensely rewatchable, still holds up today in 2016, and yes, set the bar for every action thriller to come out since. Like when we talked about When Harry Met Sally, yes. set the bar for romantic comedies, this sets the bar for action films, or everything gets compared to Die Hard, always, since 1988. Uh, there's no question about it, and this is, I think I said this when we talked about Raiders, yeah. this to me goes into that category of one of the great films that ruined Hollywood. Ooh. You know, because this is the this is one of the movies that creates the action genre that we see in the 90s leading up to today with superhero movies mm. of bigger and bigger and more spectacle and more spectacle and right. drives out smaller films, drives out dramas, drives out other kinds of mm. movies with these huge tent poles. And, and it's really sad, but that doesn't mean this wasn't a great film. It is right. absolutely a great film. And it's uh, a movie that maybe sometimes they miss the details yeah. that are the subtleties of what makes it a great film and they imitate the big explosions and the huge action set pieces that's a very good point you're right the story of this film the story within the film itself is is fantastic it's a great connective uh, uh tissue between the audience and the film the idea of this guy coming in going through a possible divorce definitely a separation his wife hasn't taken his name or his wife is like taking her maiden name, name. Seems like dumped his name dumped his name like right, had his right. name and then got rid of it right yeah. he's, he's going to some christmas party who knows how that's gonna go the kids are 
are being taken care of by their maid. You know, there is this, all this stuff going on. And then you have all this political intrigue come out of nowhere, possible terrorist. What's the reason that gets flipped? The script gets flipped on that. There is so much about the story itself that would already make this a fantastic film. When you add the incredible action sequences, the timing of them, it just takes this film to a whole nother level. And immediately when you think of the word classic, I don't think of Die Hard. But when you proposed it, I was like, of course that qualifies. Absolutely. On so many levels. So, John, how yeah. did you first come to this film? Oh, yeah. Uh, Die Hard. I came to it just like, I think just anybody else who was alive in 1988 and it was of age, I went to go see it with a bunch of friends. Uh, I think at the, the Tackett's Mill Theater back in Woodbridge, Virginia, or maybe the Potomac Mills Theater. If it had, I guess it had opened by then, the AMC there. And I was absolutely just lost in love with the film went back i think six or seven more times to see it because uh, back then i had a thing about going to see movies over and over and over again because i just sure. loved the experience of being in the theater and seeing it and bruce willis was a guy i had enjoyed because of moonlighting i had been a fan right. of moonlighting and so he had done i think he'd done like blind date or a couple yeah another forgettable film and then he was in this and this one just launched him in the stratosphere and he was so it was the it was the moment with uh, where he talks about his wife with Reginald Vell Johnson, who's playing unbelievable scene. It was, yeah, that's the moment that to me I was like, that's an actor. Whatever you want to say, that's an actor. And those moments are so rare in action movies. The honest, con- honest, connective tissue of a relationship being spoken about in a very real, vulnerable way that you would have never seen a Schwarzenegger film, you'd have never seen a Stallone film, and that's why, again, it elevates and transcends the genre. And I loved it, seeing it, and I became, I know, I've became i been a fan ever since, every time it's on. So we're going to have to get back to him talking to yes. uh, Al from Al, the bathroom. That's right, Al. Yeah. Um, but I have to tell you my story, how okay, I saw yes, this because it's one of my all-time favorites. Okay. So, summer of 1988, I'm working at a summer camp in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Nice. And totally, you know, we're off the grid. There isn't even a grid then. Mm -hmm. I don't know what's going on in the world. And every uh, couple of weeks, we would have a half day off. So I decide on my half day, you know what? I'm just going to drive down to Sonora, which is like 40 miles down the mountain. And I'm going to go see a movie. Now, I don't know what movies are in the theater. Mm -hmm. I know nothing because I've been in the mountains. So I drive down. I'm looking at the tiny multiplex in Sonora. And I see this movie. And I go, oh, it's got that guy I like from Moonlighting because I love Moonlighting. Yeah. Walk into a movie theater. I haven't seen a trailer. I haven't seen a poster. I don't know anything about what this movie is. And I walk into a completely empty theater. I am the only person at this 11 a.m. or whatever showing. And I sit down and the movie is Die Hard. That's how I saw Die Hard. No idea what I was getting into. And it was one of the great. that, That might be my greatest movie going experience ever because it was so just unexpected. Yes. You know, because I would have seen anything. Right. Whatever bad movie, I would have been happy. Right. But to see this movie was unbelievable. Oh, those are the best, man. And we should say, by the way, if you haven't seen Die Hard, what the fuck is wrong with you? This is, <laughs> maybe, I don't understand. Maybe I don't want to go that far, but certainly... Get on it if you're a young movie viewer and you haven't seen it. Or you've seen Die Hard. Yeah, or or you're one of these guys who, like, is resistant to what everybody tells you to do. Trust me, this is one of those instances where everybody is right. This movie is fantastic. Rent it. Watch it all the way through. Enjoy it. See it on Netflix, whatever it's available on. And enjoy the hell out of that film. Yeah. And, of course, we are going to spoil everything in the movie. Absolutely. So, so. really, you have no excuse for not watching this film. Hey, that'll work. Christmas music? This is Christmas music. It was December 24th on Holland Sabbath the dark. When I seen a man chilling with his dog at the park. I approached him very slowly with my heart full of-
on exactly one of the points I wanted to make, which is when you, in terms of screenwriting, when you're writing a film and you're going to have your characters come into a huge action sequence, yeah. they get a huge problem, they have to deal with something. You're going to have uh, your first 5, 10, 15 minutes of the movie before you get there. Yes. And you, as a screenwriter, must make the movie that the characters are in before the action sequence shows up mm. as interesting and compelling and dramatic as if there wasn't an action movie. Right. So that if, for some reason, Hans Gruber went to a different building yeah. and we're just left in the movie of John McClane and Holly Gennaro and their relationship, we're in. Yeah. That we're so involved in their story. Right. And it is really dramatic. And this is one of the key things to Die Hard and why, and we'll get to this, I'm sure, later, mm -hmm. why the sequels don't ever work as well. I agree. Is that... John McClane is an ordinary guy. Mm -hmm. That's the key, yep. is that he is one of us. And of course, he's exceptional in all these ways. Yeah. But emotionally, he isn't a superhero. He's not. This movie comes out at a time when the big action movies are Arnold Schwarzenegger and yeah, Sylvester Stallone. Stallone. Yeah. And he's not them. Yikes. He's not Rambo. He's right. not the Terminator. He is a guy that we can relate to. And establishing in the very first shot, the very first shot of the movie is white knuckling the plane yes. in the passenger seat. Yes. The first thing we see is this guy is scared. Yeah. And so what this movie is doing is humanizing this person from the first shot. Right. And then you get this great weird moment of... This guy saying, you know what you got to do? After you get where you're going, take off your shoes and your socks. Then you walk around on the rug barefoot and make fists with your toes. Now, it's the weirdest thing right. you've ever heard. And not only does it humanize our main character and it's funny and it's kind of interesting, but it sets up this huge piece of the story, yeah. which is that we're going to make our character barefoot. Yeah, and the, the payoff of it is brilliant because Bruce Willis has a great moment where he goes, Son of a bitch. Toes. He's a relatable everyman. He's a regular blue collar dude doing his job, flying out to the East Coast, uh, flying out to the West Coast, unsettled by having to enter into this whole new world. You imagine that he's a no nonsense New York cop. Like he's just a guy who's been working the New York beat for a long time. He's going out here to try to try to, you know, kind of connect or reconnect with his up, upwardly mobile business wife, you know, and this is interesting for the 1980s to have this kind of thing where a, the woman seems to be making more money than the man. It's all these things that are going on through the movie that make it timeless, make it like transcendent in terms of a genre. And I think that's what's so good about the story. The story is what hooks you in. The action sequences are, are the are the the frosting on top of the cake, but the cake is the story, man. Well, I, and and I think you know, whenever you have cake, I do want frosting. <laughs> that's right. But if you just gave me a puddle of frosting with some flour underneath it I would be like this is not so good that's a Van Damme film yeah, yeah. Exactly. that's exactly right <laughs> and that and, and you bring up the, the name thing again it's so what we would term this in filmmaking is plants and payoffs mm -hmm. so we're gonna have a plant which means we're gonna give you a piece of information that he's gonna be barefoot yeah. or that she's only using her, her, maiden, uh, her name. maiden name right uh, and then we're gonna pay it off later which means it's gonna come important later in the story yeah. and a bad plant is where some character says like I remember in, in Lost World the, the yeah. Jurassic Park sequel at the very beginning you see this character be a gymnast the girl mm -hmm. and you and you're watching you're like oh that's gonna come up yeah you know of course and you could see the movie telling you hey look at this 
That's not a good plant. A good plant mm-hmm. is where it's emotionally part of a story. So when he walks up and he has to check into the lobby of the place and he uses the computer touchscreen and he goes to look for Holly McLean, can't find Holly McLean, he shrugs, ah, oh, crap. So he goes to look under G, finds Holly Gennaro yes. and goes, ah, now we're in a great character moment uh-huh. where like his relationship with his wife, which we're really involved in, and this is a betrayal of sorts. Right. Then we get the great fight where you know his goal, his objective is I'm going to make up with my wife. I want to spend my night with her tonight. Yeah. That is definitely what he wants. And she asks, there's this lovely moment where first she says, Why don't we make it easy? I have a spare bedroom. I mean, it's not huge or anything, but kids would love to have you at the house. I would have. I would too. Yeah, And there's this moment of connection. There's this moment of, oh, it's going to be okay. And then right. what does John McClane do? He says, didn't miss my name, though, did you? <laughs> yeah, because he's, he's a dude. And, he's, and he's he can't a dude. not say it. Yeah. And then he, they have this fight, which is obviously a fight they yes. had before. And then she storms out unresolved because she has to go make a speech. And right. what does John McClane do? He bangs his head on the wall and says, That's great, John. Good job. Very mature. Right. Yeah. So first of all, we have an unresolved relationship, which is what you want because yeah. we're going to resolve. Because our goal as writers and as filmmakers is not to resolve things. Right. Our goal is to create tension. Not in the first act. Not in the first act. So <laughs> right. we're creating tension here. But the other thing, so we put all this story into Holly Gennaro. Holly Gennaro becomes a key plot point Mm -hmm. because the reason that Hans does not know that that's his wife is because of the use of the maiden name. So that's a good plant and payoff. Another one is that she's pissed at him, so she puts the photograph down. Yes. Why does she put the photograph down? It's totally motivatable. She's pissed at him. But the photograph being down uh, continues to allow Hans not to know who John McClane's wife is. These are plants and payoffs and yeah. the ones that work perfectly. The subtle plants are my favorite. The subtle plants that you catch later or they come at you and you're like, oh, yeah, those are the best. Those are the best Absolutely. moments in film when you're like, oh, yeah, oh, my gosh, they made that work. Those are the best. And you're right, Steve. There's so many in the film that so absolutely work and are earned and are completely believable and not exp- not overly expository that like make you feel like oh I've been manipulated like you don't feel manipulated you think it's inventive and smart and believable and natural organically in the course of the story and that's important I want to say something about this word manipulated because it's one I thought about a lot which is people often come out of a movie and go "Ugh, it was so manipulative Mm. and that's a negative Okay. And I think they don't mean what they think they mean. Okay. Because the whole point of movies are manipulating. You manipulate your That's emotions. That's why we're right, here. Exactly. That's the, the reason you came to the That's movie true. was to feel emotions. You, the, the job of the director and the actors and the filmmakers is to manipulate your mo- yeah. emotions. And what you're actually saying when you say it was so manipulative is that movie failed to manipulate me. That's what you're saying. You're saying, I see you trying to manipulate me and it's not working. Right. When you're being truly manipulative, you have no idea and you're just weeping in a puddle in the corner. (laughs) That movie is being successfully manipulated. Or you're fist bumping after an action sequence. Or fist bumping after an action sequence or laughing hysterically in a comedy. Absolutely. All of those are examples of being manipulative. All right. So let's back up a little bit and talk about some of our filmmakers. So first of all, we have our producer, Joel Silver. This guy does one of the best lists of movies. Oh, yeah. I, I, unbelievable. And keeps coming back every keeps time. Keeps coming. Still doing it. Still doing it. Yeah. From, from uh, he was an associate producer on 48 Hours mm-hmm. to uh, Die Hard, obviously, the Lethal Weapon movies, mm-hmm. the Matrix movies, Kiss yep. Kiss Bang Bang. I mean, 
that's a great list of films. Uh huh. Predator, which yeah. is where he starts working with John McTiernan. Right. And and I know you love Predator, pre- pre- <laughs> and so do I. And Predator is a a great B movie. It is a great B movie, and I'm glad that you agree. <laughs> I, I said that just for you. <laughs> People people misunderstand my argument about Predator because I say it's a great B movie. It doesn't mean it doesn't have quality. It doesn't mean it wasn't a good movie. It is a fantastic movie. It's so much fun to watch. And it is Schwarzenegger just on the cusp of super stardom, really coming into his own. But the premise is a B movie premise. In it the is, classic Hollywood sense. Like yes. this is not It's sci fi. It's sci fi, yeah. yeah. This is when in, in, in Hollywood originally had A, B, and C movies. Right. And they put the A movies were the big dramas. They were Gone with the Wind and Bridge on the River Kwai. And the B movies mm-hmm. were action, western crime. Yes. C movies were sci fi. I mean they yeah. yeah and Touch horror. Of, you mentioned Touch of Evil. I was listening to our Touch of Evil uh, episode uh, the other day and you say Touch of Evil is a B movie. It is right. a B noir. Well because in the back in the day is they had A movie theaters, yeah. B movie theaters and C movie theaters. And A movie theaters was Radio City. You right. Know, that's where you would have the big premiere and the big movies would play. Right. And B movie theaters you would have the double features and C movie theaters would be out in the hood. Right. You know. Playing Night from Outer Space and yeah, stuff. And that's yeah, what yeah. we play there. Anyway, John but McTier- Predator you see the beginnings of what's John McTiernan's style, the yes. way he moves the camera around mm-hmm. and his love of supporting characters and little moments. Right. Characters that in other movies would be throwaway and I think you see this to the nth degree in Die Hard. Mm-hmm. He gives them a little something that makes it special yeah. and it elevates and I think Predator is the movie that actually makes Schwarzenegger a star. Yeah. More so, I mean, Conan, there's nobody else who could play Conan. Right. And Terminator is a very specific thing. But then he goes and makes Commando and Raw Deal. Right. It's Predator is a genuinely good movie. Yes. And that's what makes him a star. I think. Right. An action star. But what makes him mainstream is Twins and Kindergarten Cop. Sure. Those are the ones that blow him up. But yes, as an action star, sure. he comes out with rivaling uh, uh, Stallone. And what you say is a great point. Willis is counter-programming. Willis right. is counter-programming. You know, he comes in, and at that time, it's an everyman. Keanu Reeves picks up that mantle a couple of years later, or a few years later with speed, an everyman guy who does the stuff that you don't, because he's right. skinny, he's not that strong, he's not muscular. He's got muscles, but he's not muscular. So you start to feel that, although we enjoy the fantastical nature of Stallone and Schwarzenegger, we intrinsically connect with an everyman because we all feel like we're in over our heads the majority of the time of our right. lives. You know? Well, and what's a more heroic story? Arnold Schwarzenegger fighting 50 bad guys. Right. Or, or John McClane. Yes. You know, and th- there's a, because John McClane feels like me. Of course, I can't do what John McClane right. does. Right. But still there's that sense of he's got marital problems. He's, you know, he's not the most suave of guys. No, he's, no. But he is a guy who Literally dies hard. He is not going to quit. <laughs> that's right. He's um, a, and he's street smart. And he's street. And he's very important. smart. Yeah. Well, and intelligence. That's something I wanted to talk about too. Yes, we're going to see this movie to see action sequences mm-hmm. and guns and mm-hmm. and explosions. But what what makes the movie so thrilling is he's really smart. Yes. And you watch, for instance, he puts the now I have a machine gun ho 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 guy right. into the elevator. And then he knows how to open up that elevator, climbs on top of the elevator, is watching down at the elevator through the, through the roof to yeah. see the reactions. And when they start saying names, he's writing down the names. Yes. And you go, oh, this guy's smart. Mm-hmm. This guy's really thinking about how to do it. Right. So we've had uh, Bruce Willis, who's been barefoot, and he has been running from the bad guys. Right. And we get to, because he's barefoot, and Hans knows that he's barefoot, yeah. we get to the shoot the glass scene. He's yes. in this room that's surrounded by glass. 
they explode all the glass in this cacophony, this this overwhelming sound field of shattering glass. Yeah. Bruce Willis is cowering really in a corner, you know, kind of. And, and one of the great things about Bruce Willis about this film is he's scared yeah. and stressed out. And that and, and so you're feeling for him constantly. And he realizes he's going to have to run across this glass. Mm-hmm. And that's the only way he's going to get out. Mm-hmm. Cut to a few scenes later. And he's on the radio with Al. Al is the cop who's down below, who's the good guy that's talking to him. Right. And they have a conversation. And Bruce Willis is literally picking shards of glass out of his bare feet. Right. And it's really, and there's blood everywhere, and it's really brutal. And we're not talking about that. No. Instead, the first conversation is about why is Al a desk jockey? You got flat feet? What the hell are you talking about, man? Something had to get you off the street. What's the matter? You don't think jockeying papers across a desk is a noble effort for a cop? No. I had an accident. Way you drive, I can see why. What'd you do? Run over your cab and flip the car. I shot a kid. He was 13 years old. Oh, it was dark. I couldn't see him. He had a ray gun look real enough. You know, when you're a rookie, they can teach you everything about being a cop except how to live with a mistake. Anyway, I just couldn't bring myself to draw my gun on anybody again. Sorry, man. Hey, man. How could you know? I feel like shit anyway. And it is so painful because... What's actually going on in the movie is that John McClane is probably going to be killed by terrorists. Yes. And he's wounded, and he's sore, and he's scared, and that's not what we're talking about. And in this moment that Al has to reveal this thing, you watch John McClane's character and Bruce Willis' performance so good yeah. react to the fact that he made this other guy relive this painful memory. Right. And he feels terrible. I mean, the guy's literally got glass in his feet mm-hmm. and is probably going to die, yeah. and yet he feels terrible for this other policeman's situation. Right. It's a really moving scene, and it's a scene that makes you feel for these characters. And that scene, by the way, also is a perfect plant. Yeah. Because the plant is, this is a guy who ha- he hasn't drawn his gun since killing the kid. Absolutely. And he's going to kill Alexander Gudinoff at yep. the end of the movie yep. in, in a moment that I think has been copied by a whole bunch of movies mm-hmm. terribly since then. Mm-hmm. So then that's the first scene. And then the second scene is, again, we're back in that... Uh, bathroom and Bruce Willis is telling Al that he has to find his wife when it's all over because he's probably going to be dead Yeah, and tell her tell her that um, that she is the best thing that ever happened to a bum like me she's heard me saying I love you a thousand times she never heard me say I'm sorry and I want you to tell her that Al I want you to tell her that uh John said that he was sorry. Okay? You got that, man? Yeah, I got it, John. But you can tell her that yourself. You just watch your ass and you'll make it out of there. You hear me? And again, Bruce's performance, you know, is so moving. And you go, Mm -hmm. oh, he's in this moment, in this darkest moment of his life, he's not thinking about himself. Yeah. He's thinking about how he could have been a better husband. And the woman he loves. Yeah. And this is what's great about this moment, too, Steve, is that it's this rarity in action films, but it is a relatable moment between two guys. Between two guys of a certain age. In a very sensitive moment. Yeah, in a very sensitive moment who've lived a life, and they're connecting like almost over a beer about 
these very powerful moments in their lives. Yeah. And it is what solidifies them. They're two cops talking shop, but they're two cops talking about their lives as well. And that's what connects them and makes us enjoy their relationship through the film because they don't see each other till the end of the film. Yeah. And when they do see each other, the emotion. Yeah. Because you go... Well, these guys are brothers. Yeah. From this moment forward. Absolutely. They have a connection and it is never going to go away. Right. They, they, they went from zero to 100% in one night. Yeah. One interesting thing about the script that I learned is that originally it took place over three days. Whoa. And McTiernan said, no, this is one night. Yeah. Which it has is, to be. Has to be. Right? I mean, this is, as I say, another interesting one, by the way, and we're going to get to this movie fairly soon, I think, yeah. is if you read the book Jaws... In Jaws, yeah. they get on the boat, they go out and hunt the shark, right. and they come back that night and have dinner and do some stuff, and they go out the next day, and they come back and forth and back and forth. And Spielberg said, once they're out, they don't come back. Yeah. And that is, that's that's a brilliant directorial choice. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I want to give a shout-out real quick here, Stephen. I don't know if I'm jumping the gun. Uh, to the actors in the film. Absolutely. Know, and I was going to get to that next. Okay, okay. Yeah. Well, pe- people love Bruce Willis, obviously, and people love the late Alan Rickman as Hans Gruber. And, of course, Bonnie Bedelia is fantastic as Holly Gennaro. But you got to give shouts out to Alexander Gudinov and to Reginald Bell Johnson. There is no way Gudinov, you there's no way the film works without Gudinov's character, who was becoming a fantastic actor before he died of AIDS, unfortunately. He had done the money pit, he had done he was building a he resume. Was a witness. A, yeah, yeah, witness. He was yeah. building a resume as a ballerina, a Russian ballerina who was turning into a very powerful actor. And then you had the, Reginald Vell Johnson. Who knew what Reginald Vell Johnson was? There is no way Bruce Willis's performance works without Reginald Vell Johnson as the guy playing off of him and in those scenes because he's so believable, once again, as an everyman. He's overweight. He's buying those Twinkies. He knows he shouldn't buy. He's in those moments, but that's a dude that we know. That's a dude, that, and he's got a warmth to him. Yeah, he has that, a sick, because when the guy gives him, him shit about buying the Twinkies, right. he laughs about yeah, it. Yeah, of course he, he does. Yeah, yeah, okay, you know. Right. I mean, he doesn't get angry. He's this, you like him just from the very first moment. Yeah, he's a good, and, and, good man. And we're going to spend a lot of time talking about Alan Rickman, mm-hmm. but while we're talking about actors, you can go down the whole list. Oh, yeah. Uh, Bonnie Bedelia, who's great, yes. who, who uh, Bruce Willis actually brought her in. Oh, nice. That was his idea. Okay. But then you you know, you get Paul Gleason. Yes. He, this movie has two of the great <laughs> assholes of all time. That's right. Because you have Paul Gleason, who's one of the great jerks, who's, yeah. who's in uh, Trading Places, he's in Breakfast Club, yeah. and he is just a perfect guy to dislike. Yeah. And you have William Atherton. Yes. Who we talked about in uh, Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters yeah. and that he is just horrible and that one of the interesting things about this film is that there are the people that you like and the people that you don't like right and the terrorists are among the people you like <laughs> which is ironic yeah is yeah. that on the people you like side there is Bruce Willis yeah. and Bonnie Bedelia and Mr. Takagi and mm. Al and, and then we also have Hans and Carl right. and some of the terrorists because we actually love watching them yeah and then the people we don't like you have uh, Deputy Chief whatever Paul Gleason Dwayne Dwayne yeah. Robbins Dwayne, Dwayne yeah Dwayne Robbins something like that yeah, yeah something like doesn't that doesn't matter and then you have William Atherton who's the asshole reporter right and you have the FBI guys Johnson and Johnson Mr. Johnson Agent Johnson and the other Agent Johnson <laughs> it's so great. which is hilarious and those guys have played assholes before in separate films yeah, Robert, we, Dobby, Robert Dobby and, and I, I don't know the, the other guy's yeah. name and yet they, we just hate these people. How ironic, right? Yeah. And one of the things that 
McTiernan decided when he went on the movie, and I'm not certain about this, but I got the sense originally they were just terrorists. Yeah. This is based on a book, but I don't think it re- resembles the book very much right, at this right, point. Right, right, I've never right. read the book. Um, and that what he said is there's no joy in terrorists. Yeah. Is that he wants the movie to be fun. And as soon as you get into terrorists, you get into heavy stuff, which yeah. is why they're thieves. Because mm-hmm. re- we can enjoy watching them be thieves. We like right. watching Theo break into the safe. We right. like all this stuff. Right. That's really fun. Uh, if they're terrorists, it wouldn't be fun. Right. And they're making fun of other terrorists. Like that one right. scene where Hans goes, uh, Asian Dawn, my brother is Asian Dawn. And the guy goes, Asian Dawn. It's something I read about I in read Time about Magazine. Time Magazine yeah. yeah, it's just they're making fun of the whole thing because yeah. they're just thieves, which is why this when the swerve happens, it makes you like them even more because oh, yeah. there is a purity in what they're doing. Yeah. Not Johnson and Johnson, not Dwayne. It's all about appearances. It's all about trying to be cocky. There's there's a reality to what the the terrorists, quote unquote terrorists slash thieves are doing that is pure. Like they're like, we just want the money. That's it. And we want to get it. Well, and there's right? the line from Bonnie, Bonnie Bedelia where she says, After all your posturing, all your little speeches, you're nothing but a common thief. I'm an exceptional thief, Mrs. McLean. And since I'm moving up to kidnapping, you should be more polite. Um, yeah, he's fantastic. Um, and, yeah. and the other thing he did was he made them German. And part of the uh, reason to make them German is if they had been Middle Eastern terrorists, yeah. then we have emotions about that. Right. And that's pol- now we're into politics. Whereas German terrorists are fairly neutral. Yeah. Like we don't have a strong set of feelings about that. Mm-hmm. And so because he wanted to avoid politics. Yeah. And he wanted to give us joy right and you really enjoy watching them do things well it helps that he casts alan rickman too who's a naturally a fantastic actor to step into that part and you immediately gravitate to him because he has a talent and an energy that you cannot resist he is and this is i think his first film Mm -hmm. and he was seen by the casting director saw him in a play in london and i think he's royal shakespeare Mm -hmm. and just went you got to bring in this guy and he you know to have your first film be among the, I'm sure if you were to do a top ten movie villains of all time, absolutely, he is he's top five at least. Yeah, I put him in the top five, maybe top three. Yeah, his performance is so fascinating and so fun mm-hmm. and so smart and so unexpected and scary and dangerous yeah, when yeah. he wants to be. Yep. You know, like his way of killing Mr. Takagi. I'm going to count to three. Yeah, it's a very nice suit, Mr. Takagi. To be ashamed to ruin it. I'm going to count to three. There will not be a four. Give me the code. One. Two. Three. I don't know it. I'm telling you. Get on the jet to Tokyo and ask the chairman. I'm telling you, you're just going to have to kill me. Okay. Is so callous. Yeah. Um, uh, and he's doing so many different things. Um, yeah, it's it's a fascinating portrayal. Yeah, and what what he takes with it is, is it's believable. He plays the believable nature of this X factor that he did not count on. Like he did not count on this. He's an incredibly smart guy. He thought this whole thing through. He knew exactly the reaction oh, yeah. time of the police. He knew all this stuff that was going to happen. He predicted when the FBI guys were going to show up. He had planned this thing to a T. He knew exactly what he was going to do. And then here comes John McClane. Yeah. And the progression with which the frustration that grows within him is very organic and believable. And that scene where he finds Bruce Willis up on the, uh, up on the roof or wherever yeah. it is and he's he tries to be William Clay and have that interaction with him. 
that is two guys, two masters going at it, which is right. fun to watch until one figures out the other one, right? Because right. it's, a, it's a battle of wills, of intelligence, you know? It's, well, this is the thing I was going to say, is that we like watching intelligence. Uh-huh. Is that these are not dumb people. Nope. When you watch the terrorists roll in, they have a plan. Yes. And they're executing that plan. Mm-hmm. And it is fun to watch them execute the plan. Yeah. And this is why I think, and I think we said this before, is we don't like characters in film based on their moral position right we like good people we don't like bad people right we like characters in film because they're interesting yes and they're in te- sometimes because they're intelligent and mm-hmm. alan rickman is a perfect example he's a very bad person yes and we love watching him yeah adore watching him right. and the other thing that alan rickman or that uh, mckiernan does and you see this in predator you see this uh in Die Hard, obviously and you see it in hunt for Red october is even the tiniest parts he gives them something interesting yes so, so Theo is a great example. Oh he's my. a great character. So good. Um, the way he talks, the way he's uh, watching for the SWAT teams when they're coming up. Listen up, guys. It was the night before Christmas, and all through the house, not a creature was stirring except the four assholes coming in the rear in standard two by two cover formation. And then the whole thing when they're attacking the the cops, it's like, oh, the general, the police have themselves an RV. And what's so great about that sequence is you have you you you're first of all, it's beautifully put together. You have the terrorists who you like mm-hmm. and are being really cool, and mm-hmm. Theo in particular, wiping out the cops who you don't like. But then those guys are suffering yeah. and they're hitting the tank again and the guys are screaming and you feel really bad. You do. And then you're with Bruce Willis mm-hmm. who's watching all the, who's filled with rage. And you even have things like the rocket falling off of the cart and then right. having to go back and get it. And all those little details are what's making this action sequence work. Mm-hmm. The time, because the rocket fell off the cart, that's what gives Bruce Willis the time to yeah. drop the bomb on him. And then mm-hmm. that climaxes with this huge explosion. At that time, I think this is the biggest explosion I had ever seen on film. Probably. I mean, it just was so dramatic. And again, I go, this is this thing that, that we've seen explosions get bigger, yeah. much bigger since then, obviously. Yeah. But we haven't seen them do all the pieces to build up the tension of the scene yeah. that the explosion releases. Yeah. And what so fantastic about that sequence, when you uh, break it down, it is the moment that, for me, for me personally, Hans Gruber becomes fully evil. Oh, yeah. Like, I think, I, so what I would put it slightly differently, mm-hmm. I agree with you in terms of the moment. There's yeah. The change there. Right. I think, I mean, he's evil from the beginning. Okay. But we really like him. Yes. Well, and that, we're having I guess, fun with him. That's what I mean. I guess that's I think what I mean. we're enjoying him. And it's, that's yes. the moment where it's like, oh, we got to kill that guy. Yeah. You know, he's got to go. Yeah. We got to, we got to take that mm-hmm. guy out. I can't wait till John McClane takes that guy out. Mm-hmm. Or even the tiny moment where you have Al Leong and Al Leong is one of these tiny character actors of the eighties who you see everywhere. He's the, he's the chi- Asian guy with long hair and a yeah. mustache yeah. and he's in big trouble in little China. Right. He's in lethal weapon. He plays Genghis Khan and Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and so when I, as a, as a fan of martial arts films, like I, once we saw him, it was like, that's Ali Leong. We found out his name. <laughs> anyway, he's there. He's getting his gun ready to shoot the SWAT guy and he looks down and sees a Nestle's Crunch in the in the thing and grabs it and eats it. Now, you don't have to have that in the movie. You don't have to have that in the movie, but it's so important. Yeah, but it, that's what makes... It's the little details that makes movies good. And this yeah. is why when Hollywood goes to imitate the big explosions, this is what they miss. Yeah. Is that it's the big explosions, but they're built on tons and tons of little yeah. tiny moments. Humanization. Yeah, I had a yeah. theater teacher who was uh, crazy and obnoxious, but said two brilliant things to me that I've always thought about, and he's, this is talking about plays, and mm-hmm. one of them was that people think that a, make it, directing a good play is having one really great idea. Right. And no, he said, the number he gave was, it's 10,000 good ideas, or 10,000 great ideas. Wow. And I think with film, it's even more. Yeah. And you see in this movie, mm-hmm. constant 
little tiny details mm-hmm. that are like, that's great, that's great, that's great. Even the scene where uh, Gudnoff comes down and takes the butt of the rifle and destroys the bar table. God, that man looks really pissed. He's still alive. What? Only John can drive somebody that crazy. Right, it's a, and it's once again, it's a window into their relationship, but also it's a window into her affection for him. Yeah. You know, and that's what's so great about the film with their, their relationship. You can tell at every moment that she does have affection for him, even though she's mad at him. He obviously has affection for her. We get his private moments because he's our protagonist. So right. Holly's moments have to come in the natural course of being kidnapped in that situation. Yep. And those are the moments that she has him. And, you know, with the subjects of sexism and damsels yeah, in distress yeah, yeah. and all that has come up, Holly Gennaro is a great character. She's a great she character. She is tough Handles and strong. Mm-hmm. She handles, she, when she has to walk in and say, there's this great moment of, I have a request. What idiot put you in charge? You did. When you murdered my boss. And you see Alan Rickman go, I got to give you some respect. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. Uh, you're a worthy adversary. Yeah. yeah, yeah and yeah, that's yeah. great. Yeah, she's, she's mm-hmm. a completely well-respected character. As opposed to Ellis. He's the one I forgot when I was mentioning all the people we yeah. hate. Ellis is he, great. Oh, he's a great. So this is the coked up, sexual harassing asshole who gets himself killed. Yeah. And the scene where he gets killed is very difficult because he has done one cool thing, which he didn't out Holly. Yeah. He lied about why John McClane was there protecting Holly. That's yeah. kind of cool. But then he's also selling John out, and he also is such an idiot and doesn't know that he's about to die. And the moment of realization, and you're watching and going, shit, he's going to die, shit, he's right. going to die. And he doesn't know. It's such a painful scene. And kudos to hair and makeup because throughout that whole scene, his hair is up, and he's like so, like he looks, he's got the bravado of a right. cocky idiot guy on coke that doesn't understand the, the depth of the situation right. that, he's, that he's in. And when he comes to the realization he's about to die, the hair is down, he's yeah. sweaty, yeah. he looks primed for death because right. he's he's messed the situation up. And know? one interesting thing, again, just on a technical level, is so when you shoot, uh, you, you if you're shooting a conversation between two people, you want to have them, in general, looking like they're looking at each other. Yeah. So you would have one person in, in their shot, they're on the left side of the screen, and they're looking towards the right side of the screen. Yeah. The other character would be in the right side of the screen looking towards the left side of the screen. Now, when you do a phone call conversation or a radio conversation... You want to obey those same conventions. So this is a hint for directors out there, mm. is that you want to create the illusion that they're talking to each other, even though they're facing totally different directions, they could be a thousand miles away from each right. other, is that you want to feel as you cut between them that you're cutting between two characters that are looking at each other. Yeah. So if you watch that scene, when I don't remember which is right and which is left, but when it starts, I think it's Alan Rickman is on left looking right, and Bruce Willis, when he's talking to Alan Rickman, is on right looking left. Mm-hmm. Then Alan Rickman hands the radio to Ellis, yeah. and now Ellis is right looking left, which is the direction Bruce Willis was looking. Mm-hmm. Bruce Willis takes a walk and turns around, so he ends up looking left to right, so that they still look like they're having a conversation with each other. Yeah. Now that's, and of course, you don't shoot these scenes at the same time. You right. might shoot them weeks or a month apart, and so you have to make sure that you still create the illusion, and they had to do a whole walk and camera move so that right. it could still look like Bruce Willis is looking at Ellis, even though they're in different rooms. That's yeah. good craftsmanship yeah. on filmmaking. Another thing, the way McTiernan uses the camera at this time is fairly radical. Mm-hmm. This came up when we talked about Touch of Evil, which is that 
it's relatively easy to cut from static shot to static shot. So I have a, a master shot that's static and two singles, you know, close-ups of people as they're talking to each other. I can cut right. back and forth. As soon as you start moving the camera around, they're not always natural places to cut. Yeah. It gets harder. And so, but McTiernan felt he'd come up with schemes where at, he really composed the dance of the camera. Mm-hmm. And if you watch, the camera is moving a lot mm-hmm. in this movie. The first editor he had, he says, and I don't know who this was, was a very experienced, like award-winning editor, couldn't handle it. Wow. And he had to fire him and bring in a new editor and explain this, what was apparently a fairly radical editing scheme (laughs) to cut between all these camera moves that are constantly happening. And it looks beautiful. You never notice them. No, no. I mean, not that you don't notice the camera moves, but it's so smooth. You never have those jump cuts that mess you up. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's so enjoyable for the viewer because you're constantly moving with the action. Like, that's the thing that's so great about his work as a director. He's one of these directors that just faded after a while, which is is such a shame with what happens with these directors sometimes. Because Hunter in October, Predator and Die Hard are three of the best films you could possibly have on your resume. Yeah. And to see that it didn't create further and further action that he, where he's doing a Bond film now or something where he could he still did, rely on it. He did other movies that are like, okay. Yeah, they're okay, but they're, know, they never capture the magic. He seems a little crazy, by the way, having well, listened to interviews with maybe him. Maybe that's what happened. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, because, man, Die Hard is off the charts great. Right. I love Hunter in October. Yeah. John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, Thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. The other one I wanted to talk about mm-hmm. is music. Oh, yeah. This will be a little bit of film school. Um, okay. But, but we don't talk a lot about film score. And we talked about it a little bit in terms of uh, John Williams. And yes. the things we talked about there was the idea of the leitmotif, which is a theme that goes with a certain mm-hmm. character. Mm-hmm. An element I want to talk about here is the idea of musical resolution. So, okay. so, so basically, music works on certain principles that mm-hmm. rhythm and melody and harmony have states in which they resolve, which means that you create tension and then the tension resolves itself. Right. And it's built into musical structure. So if you listen to a symphony, the, the symphony has tension within it. 
and it it wants it gives you the expectation of a resolution, um, but doesn't give you the resolution right. until it wants to to, and then you have a release. Yeah. So and there's also harmonies. They're chords that are make you feel really good and warm and pleasant, mm-hmm. and then they're chords that are sad or lonely or scary. And so uh, a good film composer is playing with these ideas of resolution in order to create both tension and the expectation of resolution later. And then Mm -hmm. when you get the resolution, here it is. So one of the interesting things in this movie is that the villains are scored with a classical piece of music. Mm. They are scored with Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, which has the section which was known as Ode to Joy. Mm -hmm. And uh, the way Beethoven's Ninth Symphony works is you're continually hearing little pieces of Ode to Joy, but he doesn't give them to you. So you hear in a very dissonant, non-harmonious, sort of dark way, you'll hear dun-dun-dun-dun, but then it stops. Wow. And if you watch the arrival of the villains throughout the film, you are hearing these dissonant little pieces of Ode to Joy. Okay. There is a string quartet that's playing at the party. Yeah. And they're playing all sorts of classical music. When Hans is coming up the elevator and we come first to the party and they enter, yeah. what piece of music are they playing? They're playing Ode to Joy. Wow. When Hans is in the elevator with uh, Takagi and he's yeah. humming, what is he humming? <laughs> Humming Ode to Joy. (laughs) So throughout this film, you are hearing little teases of this unbelievably joyful piece of music. And you're hearing them in dissonant ways and incomplete ways. So the audience, just like when you're watching a symphony, is being primed with the tension created by not hearing the true melody. Right. So you're waiting. You don't know this is what you're waiting for, but you are emotionally and musically waiting to hear Ode to Joy. And when do we finally hear the triumphant moment of Ode to Joy? Now, talk to me. What's going on here? Ask the FBI. They got the universal terrorist playbook, and they're running it step by step. When they open the safe? Yes. It's going to go. It's going to go! is blowing, I don't know where the wind is coming through, wind is blowing through Hans' hair, and you have this beautiful, joyous, triumphant moment of Ode to Joy. Yeah. And who is the most triumphant moment in the movie given to? The bad guys. Merry Christmas. Right. And that's where it goes back to, we like these guys. Mm-hmm. And it is so happy when they get into that safe and yeah. get that those bonds and they're looking at the statues it's an amazing amazing moment well and, and it does take you into that and it's a great piece of what we just mentioned uh, like a few a bunch of minutes ago the idea of manipulation it's effective manipulation so that when that moment Precisely. happens it's the explosion uh and of ecstasy and it is it's a revelation right because the lights are up and everyone's opening and the close-up of mctiernan close-up go, moves close up into them so that you feel the power as well you're caught up in the music as well the swell of it all which is so fun to 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 experience as an audience and you're right it's 
subconscious. It's completely right. subconscious operating with you underneath so that when the moment happens, you have, you, you have a legitimate, for lack of a better word, joy watching it happen. You, you do. There's yeah. no question that it is joyful. Yeah. And this goes back to the idea McTiernan had of this is why they're thieves and not terrorists. Yes. Is that it is, we want to have fun. Yep. And, and, and by the way, getting back to the idea of being manipulative, if you were watching and went, ah, yeah, oh, it's a joy, I get it. Then you are being poorly manipulated. Yes, what makes right. it manipulative is that you're not aware that this is happening to yeah, you. Yeah. Um, uh, one of the other interesting things that they do so well in this movie, and it's really important, I think, for an action movie, mm-hmm. is geography. Yeah. Is the movie lays out this building. Mm-hmm. Is that you know, okay, this is on, we're on the 31st floor, and this is the floor that's still under construction, and this is the poster of the girl in the elevator shaft. Right. And this is, and, and you get to know all of these places, and they become really important. Mm-hmm. And he spends some time making sure that you understand kind of where things are. Yeah. And each of the, the, the designer, whose name I just drew a blank on, is a great, great designer. And he, uh, one of the interesting things, so Joel Silver, yeah. I didn't know this until just recently researching the film. Yeah. Joel Silver loved Frank Lloyd Wright. Oh. Frank Lloyd Wright, great architect. Yes. And I can't believe I never noticed this until I just found out about it. The interior where the party is and there's yeah. the waterfall off the rock, yeah. that's falling water. They, falling water is Frank Lloyd Wright's most famous house built in Pennsylvania. You How can go find pictures of it. And it's built around, it's literally built on a rock on a river. So there's yeah. a river going through this house, which is a terrible place to live, by the right. way. Apparently it's always wet and moldy oh, and cold. What a shock. <laughs> but, but it's a beautiful, and that what they did when they designed this where the party is, yeah. is they built falling water as where the party is. Wow. And so, that, so that's Frank Lloyd Wright upstairs where Takagi's offices are is all Japanese, mm-hmm. you know, and that they have all these different spaces that are really carefully designed to be recognizable. Right. But that's another payoff, too, and just to be in, in a smaller way, the, the whole idea of Japan, it's a Japanese company. That's why she has to use her maiden name. Like, she, if she's right. not going to claim marriage, then she can't be divorced, right? That looks bad. So she has to use her maiden name so that no questions are asked, right? It's all these kinds of things, these little things that they do. And I, you got to give a shout out to the screenwriters, don't we? I mean, yeah, Stephen D'Souza and, uh, uh, I think it's Jeb Stewart is his yes, actual name. Yes, Jeb Stewart. And yes. I was like, who named their kid after Jeb Stewart? <laughs> hey, man. You all right. know, we all got things. Okay. Yeah, and Roderick Thorpe wrote the, book, wrote the book called Nothing Lasts Forever, which is a great title, by the way. It, is, is, it like, is. sounds like a Bond title. Double meaning within the title itself. The other thing, dude, I want to talk about, if we can get to the action sequences, which we haven't touched on yet. Are, oh, are yeah, we, there's some action I sequences. Rushing, yeah, am I rushing? No, this, go for it. This whole, what happens on the roof, these are the things that, to me, sell the movie. The story, like I said is the cake but the frosting is really really well made it's homemade oh, yeah. it is done so well with the frosting being the action sequences the stuff on the roof the inventiveness of using the uh, the uh, fire hose wrapped around oh. himself and the fear that McLean yeah. has that this is not going to work he's yeah. just like oh, I prom- if I get out of this I will never get up from a big movie a tall, a tall building again that's right yeah. and then when he goes through this is what's so great and this is like as a wrestling fan and this is a weird illusion to make or connection to make you know that no matter how close you are to getting out of trouble, there's always that one extra thing that sell that you still have to go through in these when you watch these matches. And the same thing happens here in these action sequences. Bruce Willis goes through the window, you th- through the yeah window, the glass. You think he survives, and all of a sudden the, the steel yeah. no no the steel of the fire hose starts to oh, right. drag him out the window. So the whole effort he had made just well, to I want to back get up. The I, I want to back up more than that because okay. okay, first he jumps off the building, which is crazy, which is in a great shot of the fire. And 
then up he's hanging him. outside of a glass thing, and he yeah. has to. And again, it's intelligence. Yes, as he pushes himself off the building, right. grabs his gun, fires yes. to break the glass, crashes through the glass. You're like, holy shit, that's great. Right. And then, as you say, then the metal uh, ring for the fire hose falls, and he. It barely gets out of that. Right. And then the next one is the helicopter goes crashing by. Yes. And there's huge explosions he has to dive in the water. So it continues. Yeah. The idea of continuing action sequences. It never ends. And even when he blow, like when even when he sends the C4 down the elevator shaft, he has to explode. He has to escape the own fire by his own fireball that he's just created in the elevator shaft by running away from the opening that he is through. He's thrown the right. chair of C4 down and is trying to escape that as well. Yeah. Well, because he's an ordinary guy. Like you yes. picture it in so many movies where like the guy is walking away from the explosion like he throws the lighter yeah. back over his shoulder <laughs> yeah, and the explosion goes off and he slow motion walks away as if it's the coolest thing in the world not Bruce Willis <laughs> no, and Die Hard no. he goes oh shit and right. dives away because he doesn't know what the fuck he's doing right you but, know but also what's brilliant about the film Steve is in those action sequences they don't get they don't uh, what's the word I want to say? I, I guess for lack of a better sentence structure, they don't not have the 80s quip lines. Oh, sure. Like when the Italian guy, hey, pal, when he's shooting him right. above the conference table, right. and then Bruce Willis shoots him and goes, thanks for the tip or whatever he says. Yeah. yeah. And those who he has, his, oh, when Bruce Willis throws the dead guy onto Reginald Vell Johnson's... Welcome uh, to the party, pal. Yeah, welcome to the party, pal. There's still the quotable lines. And this film is one of the most immensely quotable lines, of course, Yippie Kaye, motherfucker, being the right. number one most quotable line of the movie, which comes back through the series, unfortunately, a number of times. Uh, but throughout the movie, you have these great lines that keep you connected to Bruce Willis as an everyman, but also as a guy who's using comedy to deal with the stress of the situation. Well, the difference, I think, because I totally agree there, totally mm. great quotable lines. Yes. The difference, I think, between an Arnold quotable line or a, or a James Bond quotable line sure. is that when you're watching, and I think this is what happens in the later movies, mm -hmm. is you're watching Arnold and you're going, okay, what's going to be the line? Every time he kills someone, <laughs> right. what's the thing going to be? And it's like he drops him <laughs> off of a cliff. What happened to him? I let him go. <laughs> you know, it's like you're going to get these things. With with John McClane. Best McClain, I've ever heard. Oh, right. <laughs> Terrible. Um, with John yeah. McClane, uh, uh, I'm not paid for my impression. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Uh, with, with, John, <laughs> with John McClane, they come out of character. Yes. Is that it's not that he's trying to come up with a, it's not that the movie needs him to have a good line. Right. It's that he's having a, Hans brings up the idea of cowboys yeah. and that becomes a thing. Yes. And then to say, fuck you to Hans, he says, yippee Kaye, motherfucker. Right, right. Like that's where it's coming from. Mm -hmm. Like it's coming out of his character. The, like the great, he's in the ducting. Yeah. Come out to the coast, we'll get together, have a few laughs. <laughs> I mean, but who hasn't been in that situation oh, yeah. where they're like, why am I at this party? Who hasn't been inside why? a duct? Well, I mean, like... People who, shooting at him. Right. But who hasn't been in a situation where, like, I never should have said yes. I never should have come. Damn it. I knew I shouldn't have come. Yeah. But I came anyway. And look at look at the situation I'm in now. Not obviously a duct tape and terrorist, but you could even be at a, at a dinner or at a party or what have you. It's a relatable moment, man. Right. And throughout the whole film, it is peppered with relatable moments that we as human beings naturally gravitate to. Even the evil people like Atherton right. that hungry desire to be the most successful guy to get that story to get the scoop at all expenses he's a dirty son of a bitch Horrible. but he's doing what he want, what he needs to do to succeed and, and survive in that business you know what I'm saying well because and again it goes back to this idea that McTiernan makes sure that all the characters we meet are fully 
formed. Right. They are full people. Yes. And even though they're on screen for only a small moment, mm-hmm. they have a whole story that makes sense. One of the things as an actor, you should believe that this is your movie. Yeah. That if you're delivering that, uh, you're the waiter who's delivering the cup of coffee, then this is part of your whole story and that the, you're the most important character. You shouldn't steal the scene. But you should have you should have a character. Yeah, and that reminds me of that line in Shakespeare Love where the the guy who who plays obviously in, in Downton Abbey who plays the butler, uh, he says that the play's about a, a maid. And he's because he's playing right. the maid in Romeo right. and Juliet. <laughs> the play is about the maid That's dealing right. with this whole situation. I mean you you shouldn't be stealing focus from the from Bruce Willis. Right, right, right. But you should have a fully formed character. Absolutely. And good actors who are good people should allow the actors they're working with the room to Absolutely. do that. Um, Absolutely. Whether or not all actors or movie stars are always that generous, you know, right. might be up for a debate. But, right, right, right. right. Um, uh, well, he was still young enough in the process before yeah. he became whatever he became, according to Kevin Smith, Bruce Willis became. Yeah, that's, it's those, very sad. Those to are tough that, stories to yeah, listen to. Really tough. Because, at this point, yeah. Because at this moment, it's like he's in Moonlighting where yeah. he was like uh, uh, amazing. Mm-hmm. And this is the launch of a star career. And you see this movie, mm-hmm. you're like, oh my God, he's the greatest guy ever. Yep. And it, it's hard. To, it's a little sad for me because yeah. Bruce Willis's career, there are a few really good movies. Oh, absolutely. And there's a lot of like, oh. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, he had problems with Sybil Shepard on the set of Moonlighting, and that was probably two people with very strong egos clashing all the time. So you bring that to a... a, But he is a man. He is a dude. He is a man. People gravitate to him. I think blue state, red state is irrelevant when it comes to Bruce Willis. People just like Bruce Willis. Well, and and, and it's really this character. Yes. Like like John McClane, yes. And and this is, you know, maybe this is getting a little ahead of ourselves, but talking about the sequels, Mm -hmm. and I I like three... Sure. You know, and that's kind of it for me. None of them are rewatchable for me. None of them. Yeah. Only Die Hard is. And, and, and maybe it's impossible to duplicate. Is It's Bruce Willis's ordinariness, his humanness, yes. his sensitivity. His, it's all of the, the tension and the fear that he's going through in the course of this movie that right. makes that character so great. Right. And the more the movies go on, and particularly in the fifth one. Yeah. In the fifth one, he's like climbing up and jumping off of buildings. Like, it's no problem. It's like, dude, you're afraid of heights. Right. Like, this was established in the first scene in the movie. And you're almost 60 years old. I yeah. hate to break it to you. Because what, what, what would have made that last movie work better is if he has to negotiate Moscow like he negotiated the Nakatomi Towers. Right. Like people forget when you watch the movie, that's the first time he's ever been in that building. Right. He has to figure that building out where everything is going, using the blueprints, figuring out where, where what would go where, at his own uh, wiles as a cop, figuring all that out. If he had negotiated Moscow the way he negotiated Nakatomi Towers, that film five might have had a chance of being good. Yeah, well, it, but that's the thing is that it's watching the intelligence yeah. and watching the humanness and watching him overcome yes. adversity. Yes, you know, it's like like Die Hard's like Rocky in that yes. sense. Yes, absolutely. Is Steve. that is that the thing about Rocky is he doesn't go down. No, it's a, Rocky is a film about courage. Right, and Die Hard is too. Right. Whereas when you become Arnold, essentially, mm-hmm. when you become a superhero. Well, then there is no courage because right. it's like, well, you can do anything. You're right. not afraid of anything. Right. You're not really human anymore. And I can't relate to you anymore. Yeah. And it's, it's always sad to me. And we've seen this with other films when someone who is there at the inception of something great mm-hmm. doesn't understand what made the thing great when they're trying to replicate it later. Right. It's like, don't you know, you, you of all people should understand. But actually, a lot of time they don't. Yeah. And you it know? drives me nuts when film fans try to convince you. 
Like Matt, Matt Nost on the Top Ten Show, he is he tries to convince me all the time that Die Hard Two is a good film, and I do not agree. I thought it was good when I saw it in '91 or whatever year it came out. It's a it's a clone. It's in a, a clone in, in, a, a, yeah. in, a, in a jar of formaldehyde. It yeah. is not actually a good film. And Die Hard Three, it's serviceable. Three's three, three's the one that I kind of go okay. Sure, but um, to me, it doesn't have the magic no. of one. There's something about a guy against all odds in that situation going through a divorce or going through a separation, trying to put, trying to save himself and his wife. There's a nobility in that. And so that when it happens, and, you, it, and it happens in a way that you probably, it would stretch the boundaries of reality, but it works. The tape on a sweaty back, a sweaty, bloody back. Oh, such a good scene. That stays there, and then he swings it around. It's so believable. And once again, this is great, Steve, because we should talk about the finale. There's the plant of the watch yep, on... The Rolex. The Rolex yep. on... Another uh, perfect plant in yes, chaos. right? On, uh, on Gruber's wrist. Being the thing that is keeping him alive and possibly dragging them both to their death, Holly and McLean. Yeah, on, on Bonnie Bedelia's wrist. Right, on Not Bonnie Bedelia's Oh, sorry, on Bonnie Bedelia's wrist, yeah. right, which is the Rolex watch that what he gave, what, uh, that uh, What's-His-Face gave her? Or uh, well, Takagi gave yeah, it. Takagi it, was, gave it was a reward for the last deal. Exactly. It's a Rolex. <laughs> um, right. And, and, the, and we also have to talk about the look on Rickman's face hanging off about to do a fall, which I think he did do a fairly high fall. Right. Yeah, it wasn't the high fall that you see in the wide shot. Oh, they didn't tell him. Right. And, yeah. and, they, and they dropped him. Yes. He's, uh, he's up over an airbag, um, and I don't know how high the fall was. Yeah. But the look on his face. It's so First of all, the shot, the shot to begin with of he, they're trying to get the watch off. He's in super slow motion, yeah. and the gun, barrel of the gun comes into frame. So and you're bad. like, oh, shit. And then the fall and the expression on his face in the fall yeah. is... Uh, it's an amazing moment. Yeah, and they don't miss that moment to make a comedic moment out of it with Paul Gleason going like, I hope that's not one of our guys. Yeah. It's just brilliant, those little things that pepper the film throughout and make it so much fun. One, one thing that's just silly and personal, <laughs> yeah. and I, but I bet you had this exact same experience. Mm. When I moved to Los Angeles, it was... That's Nakatomi Plaza. Yep, yep. I mean, when you saw it, like, because it's in Century City. Yep. And every time I drive by it, and I've lived in L.A. for 20 years now. Yeah. I, every time I think that's Nakatomi Plaza. <laughs> One of my favorite Christmas memes from the last couple of years is the picture of Nakatomi Plaza. And it says, never forget or always remember or something like this. Yeah. Just never forget. And then has the date of Die Hard coming out. So that building is actually, it's right next to the Fox lot, yeah. owned by Fox. And they had to, it's just one of the weird things of filmmaking, yeah. they had to do serious negotiations in order to use the building. Wow. Yeah, Fox charged Die Hard, a movie made by Fox, a ton of money <laughs> to use that building. Like just to, when they really did roll that tank up yeah. and wreck that uh, railing, yeah. they really did that. Mm-hmm. And and it was like it's, they said it was like a month of negotiation to be yeah. able to drive a truck up because they did mess up the building. Bit. Well, there's and there's this is a great. Well, you just made a reference to something in the film. Like there's an interesting subversiveness in the film to that, uh, right? Every organized uh, police force mm-hmm. is made fun of. The SWAT team cuts their hands on rose thorns, right? And it's like, oh, these are really tough guys that are complaining about cuts on their hands from a thorn bush or something. And oh, then yeah. and you have Dwayne and you have Johnson and Johnson, who are just idiot FBI agents who get blown up. And then you have Idiots Paul Gleason. And fairly evil. And fairly evil, yes, yeah. exactly. And then Paul Gleason coming in as Dwayne, who's all about like saving face and the public eye and being cocky about all this kind of jazz, not really assessing the situation correctly. What you have are the grunts on the ground with the regular blue collar dudes. It's their way of making fun of these 
arrogant, the management, the higher ups, that kind of thing. It's all there. You know? Well, that's what I mean is that there's these people that you like and there's the people yeah. you don't like. Yeah. And the people that you don't like are split between good guys and bad guys. Yes. And the people that you like are split between mm-hmm. good guys and bad guys. Mm-hmm. And that it's interesting that Hans and Carl are two of the people you like. Yeah. They're fun to watch. Um, one of the interesting things you have to think about, when, again, it's a filmmaking thing when you're making a, a movie like this, yeah. is continuity. Yes. And continuity means... Does the thing in this shot look like it's supposed to look at this moment in the film? So if I have someone pick up uh, their cigarette with their left hand in the next shot, they can't have it in their right hand. Mm-hmm. And that the job of continuity is the script supervisor, uh, but it's also the job as you're. That's mostly in the scene as you're going shot to shot. One of the big jobs is costumes. Yeah. So so for instance, one thing you'll do when you start to shoot a movie, you're working with your costume designer, and they will make a chart of the days of the movie. So if you have a movie that takes place over twelve years, they'll say, okay, what day is this? This is this day and they'll have the clothes for that day. Well, this is all one day. But you have Bruce Willis wearing a T-shirt. Yeah. Classic, you know, uh, tank top, wife beater. Wife beater shirt, yeah. And that shirt's got to get dirty. Yeah. And dirty, dirt continuity is super hard. Mm -hmm. Exactly how dirty is this shirt at this moment? And you're shooting a whole film out of order. Right. And you're going, oh, at this point, he's got a little blood on the shirt from the first thing and a little dirt from the second thing, but he hasn't gone through the ducting yet, so it's not filthy. And then, and now he's got blood from this thing or wound continuity. That's a yeah. really hard one too. Yeah. What, what did it, what did that bruise look like? How much time has passed since he got shot in that shoulder? Right. And, what, and, and that takes a team of people really focusing on this mm-hmm. and they get it mostly right. There's actually a moment where, where I think other people have said this too, where that shirt does, looks too dirty at that moment mm. and then less dirty and then dirty again. Right. They didn't quite get it right, but it's really hard to do. I think one of the great mess ups of that particular thing is in Wrath of Khan, the blood stroked uh, open lapel of Kirk's yeah. after, he ha- after Scotty's nephew has grabbed his right. uh, lapel and put blood streaks on it. The blood streaks vary in degrees depending on the shot. When are we doing Wrath of Khan again? Uh, hopefully soon, and hopefully we'll get Scott Mance on the show to do it with us. We I will can't, see. We I will cannot see. wait. A little preview, hopefully, of things to come. Yes. What else would you like to address, Maestro? I'm, I'm looking down my list. I remember so, someone telling me that I wouldn't get a word in edgewise. Tell well, me what you would like to talk don't about. Don't test me. <laughs> Uh, so character development. Yes. Um, one basic idea. So if you're a screenwriter and you're thinking about how do I approach creating an interesting character, one philosophy or one technique is what's called a character crack. Mm-hmm. And a character crack is you create a, this is who the person is and this is their crack. The crack is generally something that is a negative trait in opposition of, of who they are, or what they want. Right. So a really simple one that's done perfectly is Al is a policeman who can't draw his gun. Yes. So his identity is a cop, a hero, a guy who wants to do the right thing, and the flaw is that he can't draw his gun. Mm-hmm. And then in the course of the movie, we resolve that flaw. Yes, we do. That is a perfect, uh, again, plant and payoff and character crack and character resolution. Again, with John, with John McClane, he is this person who loves his wife and cannot continually is his own mm-hmm. enemy in resolving his situation mm-hmm. with his wife. So the, the crack is his pride. The crack yeah. is his inability to communicate and the end the moment is so touching where he says how is my wife Holly Holly McClain hello Holly this is why good plants and payoffs work so well is you built up so much emotion around this name and he has come to the place where he goes I have to love her for who she is he's changed that much and then she has looked at her husband who's done this ridiculous thing and that's my husband you know know, and it's a wonderful moment in the film Mm -hmm. and take his name again like because he showed that he could this is the level to which he loves her to endure all this 
to make sure she's safe and to save her from this guy. Who knows what this guy was going to do if he was going to dump her eventually, yeah. kill her and dump her somewhere. And he did everything he could just to get back to her. It's his penance for the mistakes he's made in the marriage, I think, in a, in a, in a, in a kind of roundabout way, you know, which I think works because when that moment happens, it's very beautiful. And Al knows that relationship just from that conversation and allows a smile of understanding oh, in yeah. that moment, which is so yeah. great. And then you juxtapose it with immediately, just when we feel comfortable, once again, just when we feel comfortable, there is one extra thing that needs to be done, and that's right. good enough. Throwing off the uh, robe or what, throwing off the whatever they've got him on. It's blankets, like blanket, blankets, blanket, yeah, yeah, and then pointing the uh, the weapon, which somehow, I don't know how he walked out of there with a weapon on the blanket, um, pointing the weapon at... Uh, at good, uh, good enough who we last saw hanging from a chain. Yeah, hanging from, which is a great fight scene. Fantastic Holy fight scene. Holy crap. Yeah, I want to talk about that. And not only is it a great fight scene, and it's brutal. Yes, like, brutal. And it, it is hard and brutal, and you got this guy who's you know a fantastic ballet dancer yeah, yeah. who's doing some beautiful kicks yeah. and then you have like the way bruce willis fights is is like berserker angry yeah, like really. it's not it's not bruce lee skilled it's not powerful it's Arnold. regular dude fighting it's a regular dude and he yeah. just like and i love the line i remember i can still remember seeing this in movie theater i'm gonna kill you and then i'm gonna fucking cook you and then i'm gonna fucking eat you <laughs> That is just That's the level to which you're pushed sometimes. That is that is full insanity. And it is so and you're in the I remember I was alone in a movie theater yeah. and I went, yeah. yeah. Right, because you're mean, caught up. Because you're so emotionally yeah. involved in that. Yeah. Um and, and the, the the final good enough moment, I really think this is one of those moments that's just it's sad because it's imitated so much. Yeah. You know, it's so great and mm-hmm. it's so awesome. And and now because now you watch an action movie and the action movie ends and you go Okay, what's when, when's yeah. it coming? Yeah, like oh, we didn't see that guy. That guy's coming, but that guy's going to come back. Yeah, and it's sad because we kind of know the moves. Well, now because but the three best ones were in the eighties because this one, mm-hmm. Lethal, Lethal Weapon, Weapon with Gary Busey, yeah. and then Glenn Close coming out of the bath in mm. Field Attraction. Those three yeah. were perfectly done in the eighties and have been often imitated, as you've state as you just yeah. stated, throughout the decades since. Right, and 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 it's and you kind of want to just. I remember watching. In Die Hard Three, yeah. there's sort of like it's what sometimes they have what I call the fourth act. So movie tends to have yeah. a three act structure, and then you have, and I think this starts with like Aliens, where mm. Aliens you have that big right. final sequence. You right. think things are done, and no, it's not done, and we're going to have a big final sequence. Right. They do one in Die Hard Three that I think is terrible, and now you see them a lot. Yeah, you think it's over? No, oh, we got to do another big right. action sequence. Right. Final thoughts on Die Hard? Uh, it's, uh, my heart. For the first time in any of the films that we've reviewed, my heart is breaking talking about a final thoughts, knowing we're done talking about the film. Uh, my final thoughts is this is one of my most favorite, absolutely fun films. I go back to all the time. I think it's incredibly timeless. If you haven't watched it in a long time, watch it again. Appreciate it after our listening to this episode and see if the things give you that we talked about give you an even deeper appreciation and enjoyment of the film because that's what the film is above all everything else it is one of the most enjoyable films that you will ever spend your time watching um i totally agree and i'm going to put this movie i think i said it i know i said it about when harry met sally mm. maybe one other time i'm going to put this in the category of perfect movie Ooh, I think this is might be a perfect movie. I think you're absolutely. I right. I can't think of a moment, and it's not that the other movies we've talked about right, are all great. Right. They're great films, but this is like a perfect machine to do the thing that it does. Yeah, and and there's so many. We only scratched the surface, and we haven't talked about Argyle. Argyle. We haven't talked about mm-hmm. there's all these little character moments. We haven't talked about even the fact that that 
Bonnie Bedelia's assistant is pregnant yes. adds something to the film. Right. We haven't talked about the way Mr. Takagi jokes and tries to make uh, John McClane feel comfortable. Yeah. We haven't talked about watching Ellis do cocaine and them walking in on him. There's just all these little moments, right. little details, right. and there's so much in terms of the filmmaking. So, A, watch the movie, enjoy it. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of fun. You can't beat it. And then, for those of you who are filmmakers who really want to analyze film, Watch the commentary track. Watch yeah. it again. Watch it with the sound off. Right. Try to take a look at the at the shot composition. Yeah. Think about each one of the character moments for the minor characters that you introduce that they're all sort of interesting and in how he made those choices. It's a movie that you continuously can dig into and learn from. Yeah, I do want to say one last thing because you reference Argyle. Yeah. Argyle is the reason this film to me is as close to Shakespeare as an action film will ever get because Argyle is classic comic, comic relief, relief of a Shakespeare tragedy yeah. or Shakespeare drama. He is there for those moments to take you a, to give you a little bit of brevity before we sink back into the drama that you're watching and yeah. he's great at it that he's actor great. is fantastic and by it. the way one thing we haven't brought up yeah this is a christmas movie that's right what a perfect time to set the movie yeah christmas in la no less so it's not going to be snowy it's not going to be all these other elements you know but you have that vibe of it being christmas which is what's so enjoyable about it so that when he has the tape which once again has that bit of humor right. to the situation yeah 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 the, the, the Run DMC. It's Run DMC. Yeah, Run DMC. Run DMC right, Christmas exactly. music. Yeah, it's great. Hollis and Qu- Christmas and Hollis. Yeah. All right. Hollis so that Christmas. is uh, the beginning of what we think about Die Hard. <laughs> That's right. Uh, we probably have more to say, but I feel we should wrap this up. Sure. So we'd like to hear what you think about Die Hard. Uh, you can uh, reach us on our Facebook page, which is The Cinephiles. That's C I N E dash F. I-L-E-S. It's not a P-H because why would you have a P-H make an F sound? That's right. just bizarre. That's so strange. Uh, you can leave a message for us on Facebook. You can request other films. Although I've got to tell you, we've gotten a lot of requests and we're going to have to be doing this. At this point, I think we have to do this show for at least five or six years to take care of all the requests that people have sent us. <laughs> yes. But uh, as always, you can reach me on Twitter at S.R. Morris. John, where can they reach you? You can always find me at The Roca Says, R-O-C-H-A, uh, on Twitter and on Instagram. Follow me. I communicate with everybody. I like to respond back if I can respond back if it's a reasonable request or reasonable question. Yep. Um, uh, as always, uh, we'd love to have you review us on iTunes. It's a big help. All right, uh, that's it for this week. We will see you next time on The Cinephiles. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 